This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. We're going to be turning in the Word of God to the book of 1 Samuel. And it has been a while since we were in that text. We started last October, it was, I believe, and I think we've only tackled it once since, since the whole lockdown happened in March. And I have to freely admit this is not the easiest section of the Bible. Do not go into open First Samuel and immediately sense that God is speaking directly into your life through this book, but it's the kind of book that rewards slow, patient reading. You know, in the Bible, God speaks to us mostly through stories. And we see God working his plan out through the complicated, twisted, confusing paths of ordinary people's lives. And that has a lot to teach us about how God might be working in our own confused, twisted paths. So, 1 Samuel, for those of you who are new or who have completely forgotten what this book is about, 1 Samuel takes place about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and it's about the transition from this tribal society led by military chieftains, and it's about the emergence of God ruling through kings. First of all, King Saul, who begins with so much promise, mightily, the spirit of God mightily falls upon him, but Saul begins to turn away from God and tragically is rejected by the Lord. And David, a man after God's own heart, is secretly anointed instead. David, of course, famously kills the giant Goliath and all seems to be going really well for David until until Saul becomes jealous and David has to run for his life. And so here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 23. And let's read the continuing story of how God is delivering David from his enemies. 1 Samuel chapter 23, and this is the New International Version that I'm reading from. Listen to the word of the Lord. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kela and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Kela." David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kela against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him, go down to Kela for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kela, fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kela. Now, Abiathar son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Calah. Saul was told that David had gone to Calah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering the town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. 
David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kela and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kela surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Kela surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kela and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kela, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hills of Hakalah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he's in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they called this place Selah Hamalakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. This is the word of the Lord. And in this story, we see a contrast between two kinds of king. There's the king who wears the crown, King Saul, but there's also the true king, the man after God's own heart, the one who's been secretly anointed by the prophet of the Lord. And David is in an eight to ten year journey of running for his life from Saul, of going from place to place, living in caves and in the wilderness never sure when the moment is going to come when he's going to be betrayed and brutally executed by the king. And yet our story begins with David in the cave of Adullam hiding out, and he hears the news of an attack on his fellow Israelites. And David's reaction, even though he's a fugitive, 
is to feel the burden of kingly responsibility. David is not yet the king. And it's Saul's job to be the one to save the city, this border town of Kela, which is a fortified city right on the edge of Philistine territory, where these Philistines, these much more heavily armored people from Crete, are probing and raiding into the land of Israel. And it's Saul's job as the king to be the one to rescue this city. But Saul's not coming. And here's David, only five kilometers north. He can almost hear the sound of the Philistines attacking the city and raiding the grain from the threshing, from the threshing floor. And David feels the burden of kingly responsibility. He's in great danger, and yet he can't allow himself just to stay hiding out in his cave while the Israelites are being killed. And he asks the Lord, God, do you want me to go and rescue the people of Kela? He's not waiting passively for God to tell him what to do. He's feeling this burden in his heart, and he's seeking God. God, what shall I do? And God tells him, yes, go and attack the Philistines and save this town. But David's not alone. He's had a force of 400 men since grown to 600 in this chapter. And the previous chapter tells us that these were men who were um, in distress, in debt, discontented, the very dregs of society, the people that no one wants have gathered around David these criminals and ruffians and people who are on the run. And these guys are not quite so eager as David to go and attack the Philistines. They say to him, look, David, we acknowledge you as our captain, but we're in danger enough here in Judah. We're barely hanging on by a thread ourselves. Now you're proposing that we leave the safety of this stronghold and go and attack the Philistines. And David, just to make sure, inquires of God again and receives the confirmation, go down, attack the city. I'm going to give the Philistines into your hands. You know, David is growing in his character in these chapters because if you recall the previous chapter, chapter 22, David had been looking out entirely for his own security. And he'd gone up to the priests at Nob to inquire of the Lord. But he hadn't taken into account the safety of those priests. And there was an Edomite, Doeg, there who had seen David, who betrayed the priests. And Saul, in his rage, slaughtered 80 of them and destroyed the priests at Nob. And David, when he hears the news at the end of the previous chapter, is filled with guilt. And he's realizing that to really be God's anointed means more than just looking out for yourself. It means taking on your own shoulders the responsibility for people who are in distress. Even if it means risking your own safety. This is the kind of king that God wants. And David in this chapter stands in such contrast to Saul, who is not that kind of king at all. Saul is becoming increasingly paranoid 
and obsessed with David. And instead of setting out himself to rescue his own people from the Philistines, he's totally obsessed with destroying and crushing David, who he perceives as a threat to his throne. David is a man who is seeking God again and again. Four times in this chapter, David inquires of the Lord, God, what do you want me to do? I want to follow your will, God. Show me the path that I need to take. And David's been gifted this ephod. We're not entirely sure what the ephod was, to be honest. The Old Testament doesn't give us much information, but it was some kind of priestly garment or object that could be used to determine God's will in a situation. Somehow God would speak through this thing, seemingly only in yes or no answers, like flipping a sacred coin that would always tell the truth. And it's ironic in a way that Saul's very name means to ask. But Saul can no longer ask from God because by his butchery of the priests, he's driven the sole survivor and the ephod into David's hands. David is the only one in this story who's able to seek the will of God. The only one who wants to seek the will of God. Because we see in our chapter that Saul again and again uses this very pious God talk. Oh, God has delivered David into my hands. God bless you for betraying him to me. Saul has a lot of God talk, and he can speak the language. It falls very easily from his lips. But Saul is not seeking God himself. He knows the lingo, and he can use it very well to manipulate other people. But he has no heart's for God. You know, David in his Psalms writes things like this As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. When can I go and meet with God, the living God? And that longing for God, that hunger and thirst for God, is completely foreign to the heart of Saul. And you know, the church is really cursed with so many people and so many leaders who are very fluent in the pious God talk. But they have no compassion for other people. They have no heart for God themselves. They are obsessed with gaining and maintaining control over other people. And it's so easy to drift into this mindless God talk ourselves. And often I find myself up here saying these things, and then the Holy Spirit asks me, do you really believe this? Are you in this moment holding on to this truth yourself as your very life? Or is this just kind of a semi-automated pastoral talk that you just have to do because it's your job? Very, very easy, frighteningly easy to get into that mode of God talk. And it's 
deadly for Saul and it's deadly for Israel. But God has a new kind of king who's not just saying things about God that he doesn't mean. A king who is actually seeking the very heart of God out of desire for God and out of compassion for his people. David has a wonderful heart to go and rescue those who need rescuing. But he doesn't just dash off full of zeal to help other people. He stops and he asks God, and he asks God again for confirmation. Do you know God promises that he will always guide those who are willing to stop just for a moment to ask him for direction. Even if we have good hearts full of the desire to do God's will, God wants us to stop and ask. And he promises, Psalm 32, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. David is worthy to lead others because he himself is listening to God. He's worthy to lead other people because he himself is being led by God. The shepherd is being shepherded by the Lord. And David, assured, doubly assured of God's presence and power, leads his 600 men into battle, and God gives them a mighty victory, and they destroy the Philistine forces, they capture the livestock on which they meant to carry back all the grain, and they deliver the people of Kayla. And David and his men, I'm sure, were given a hero's welcome, offered the key to the city, feasting and partying and celebration and speeches all night as the city rejoices that they have been delivered by this man of God. And they're not the only ones rejoicing at this news because it also reaches the ears of Saul. And he's very happy to hear what's happened. Not because one of his cities has been rescued from the enemy. He hardly seems to care about that. He is delighted that David has put his head into the trap. He's inserted himself into the seeming stronghold that will actually be a cage for David. David has been so hard for Saul to pin down, scooting around the wilderness. At last, David is in a fixed place and Saul can get his hands on him. And incredibly, Saul mobilizes all the forces of Israel. There's a general mobilization. Every able-bodied man is called, and Saul assembles the largest possible army for the sole purpose of killing one man, David. And David is anxious, and he's suspicious, and he asks God, is it true? Is Saul going to come down? And through the ephod, God answers, yes, Saul is coming for you. And David asks again, are these people whom I've rescued, are they going to betray me? Are they going to hand me over to Saul? And God gives David the answer he does not want to hear. Yes, they will betray you. They will hand you over. And David and his men escape from the trap and Saul calls off his pursuit. Really, in this chapter, it's a story of two betrayals. Betrayed by the people of Kayla, 
betrayed by the men of Ziph. But in between those two betrayals is a perfectly timed visit from David's friend, Jonathan. Saul's own son, who has recognized the hand of God on his anointed and has cast his lot in with David to his own cost. And this, in fact, is the very last time Jonathan will meet David before his death. And he goes down to his friend who's on the run, who's in the wilderness, who I'm sure is at a very low place after being betrayed by these ungrateful people of Kela. And David, or Jonathan goes down to strengthen David's hands in God. By the way, it is amazing how easy it is for those with good hearts to find David. Abiathar finds David. Jonathan finds David. 600 discontented men somehow find David. Saul is the only one who is unable to find David. And Jonathan meets David in his secret place in the wilderness to strengthen his hands in God. To speak to his friend about the certain fulfillment of God's promises. He's not just there to be a sympathetic shoulder for David to cry on, to pat him on the back and murmur some vague consolation. Jonathan is there with a specific purpose, to speak the truth of God's plans to David, to stir up his heart, to take his eyes off of these awful circumstances and on the opposition against him, and to turn his eyes to the God who has been protecting him and will make David endure to the end. David, you are going to be the king. God has chosen you to be the king. I know this, and even my father Saul knows this. David, don't be discouraged by the opposition and the enmity of my father. If you had the eyes of faith, you would draw hope from that fact. You are being opposed because Saul knows and is sure of God's plan for you. That's why he is after you so obsessively. Even the opposition and even the difficulty is a sign of the truth of God's promises. And David takes heart and he takes courage and he finds his hands strengthened in God. Jonathan is such a model of true friendship, isn't he? Strengthening David's hands in God. And what a gift it is to have a brother or sister willing to leave their comfortable, safe place and to go and find us in the wilderness when we're discouraged and cast down and doubting whether God has really spoken to us or not. And to have a brother or a sister who's willing to look us in the eye, take us by the shoulders and say, no, this is what God says over your life. Take heart, take courage. God is for you. God is with you. He will not let you be destroyed. What a gift, what a precious, precious gift to have such a friend. May God give all of us at least one friend 
like this. And may God give us the grace to be this kind of friend for other people. What a gift Jonathan is to David between these two betrayals. And so David is able to rise up and go into the desert, to the wilderness of Ziph, into the mountains where he's going to be betrayed a second time. You know, you can have some sympathy for these people of Kela because even though David had delivered them, they know that Saul is a bloodthirsty man of vengeance who has just massacred these priests. And they know there's going to be no mercy for them if they're accused of harboring David. And so, in a way, you can understand their betrayal because they're acting from a position of weakness and fear. But that's not the case with these men of Ziph. Saul doesn't even know that David's down there. They go on their own initiative to betray God's anointing out of sheer evil, out of pure malice. They go up with all the intelligence that Saul wants. They know every place where David has put his foot, every hiding place he has. And Saul is given detailed plans so that he can go and capture David. And so again, the hunt begins. And David and his men move from place to place. And at the end of our story, the game is almost up for David. He's on one side of the mountain, and Saul and his men seem to be making a pincer movement around the other side, and their, their claws are almost upon David. And at the very moment when David is about to be captured, a breathless messenger arrives and informs Saul that all the way on the western side of the country, on the other side of the country, the Philistines are attacking. I suppose Saul had no idea how close he was to getting his fingers on David, or he never would have given up the chase at the moment when he nearly had him. And yet this miracle from God arrives. And it's strange, the miracles of God, because it's not always rocks falling from heaven or the earth opening up. In this case, The people who save David are the Philistines, the enemies of God who are unwittingly being used by God to protect the true king. And David is saved again. You know, I suppose David learned more about true kingship in his years in the wilderness than he did in killing Goliath. Killing Goliath was a moment of incredible adrenaline. David celebrated as the hero. People are singing songs about him. But that, in God's eyes, does not fit him to be the king. And David must be driven out into the wilderness to learn what it really means to trust God. Not just to read about it in books, not just to mimic the pious God talk of other people, but to know in his own experience what it means to have God's deliverance from extreme danger. And again and again, David is forced to hold on to God and God alone, to find his refuge in the power and protection of God, to put his faith in the promises of God, because in the wilderness, 
There is nothing else for David to trust. The true king, the one, the only one who is able to lead the people of God must know himself what it means to put his entire trust in the power of God. And two, it's in the wilderness that David will learn what it means to take responsibility for other people. He hadn't done this with the priests at Nob. He'd been obsessed, understandably obsessed with his own salvation. But now he's learning to be the king means I can't just hide out safely in my cave. I need to risk myself and go out towards those who are crying out for deliverance. And David has to learn to do this, to take responsibility, not just for people who are crying out for help, but for people who are weak and fearful and faithless. To be the king means to rescue people who are not going to be grateful, people who will reject you and betray you, but you go and you save them anyways because that's what it means to be the king. And of course, David is a small, incomplete picture of God's true anointed Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, the King, who feels in his own heart the burden of kingly responsibility. To be the king is not about wearing soft robes and eating caviar and riding around in a limousine and having 600 channels of cable. To be the king means that you're first in battle and that you're risking yourself to protect other people. And as the king, Jesus shows up. He always shows up to save his people when they cry out for him. Even though he knows full well that we are afraid, that we are weak, that we will reject him, we will betray him, we will fail to acknowledge him, but nevertheless, King Jesus comes to the rescue. And if you want to follow the king, that means you're going to join him in rescuing those who are in distress. The 400 followers in chapter 22 are now 600 in chapter 23. More and more people are coming to David. People in distress, people in debt, people who are discontented and bitter in soul, people who are angry at the system, who have been victimized and abused by the way Saul's kingdom is working in Israel. People who are traumatized in different ways. But under David's leadership, they're learning to listen to God. And under David's leadership, they're following him, their chieftain, into battle to rescue other people. You know, we all come to Jesus with baggage. And the kingdom Jesus assembles, as we see in the gospel, is not the perfect people with no problems. It's the sinners and the tax collectors 
and the bandits, they're the ones that he gathers around him in his kingdom. People with a lot of sin, a lot of wounds, a lot of hurts, and a lot of trauma. People who have had ugly things done to them and who feel ugly things within themselves. And we come out into the wilderness to the king, to God's anointed for refuge and safety, for protection from those things. And he gives us that safety, but he also challenges us not to stay in the cave with him, but to follow him, to be agents of God's salvation, to feel, to share the very compassion that Jesus has for those who are being threatened by the forces of evil and to feel that kingly burden in our own hearts. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And these 600 men are rough men, barely better than criminals themselves, but under the leadership of David, they're forged into the core of his new kingdom. And they follow David into battle, and they follow him when he flees from Saul. And when God miraculously saves his anointed, when God shows up to rescue David from Saul, it's not just David who's being saved. Everyone with David is saved as well. All those men on the other side of the mountain are saved when God shows up for David. God has vindicated the anointed. And Jesus miraculously has been rescued from death, quite literally risen from the dead. And because we're with Jesus, rough as we are, burdened with our problems and our difficulties, yet we've given our allegiance to Jesus and we're following him as our captain. And therefore, we participate in his kingdom and we enjoy his salvation. I want to finish this afternoon with by reading you Psalm 54. It's only seven verses, and you can turn there in your Bible. If you like, I'll read this out loud. Verses that David composed during this time of trouble. Let me read the superscription as well. Psalm 54, David writes, For the director of music with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me and your faithfulness destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we come to you again as our rescuer and as our deliverer. You are our strong place, the tower to which we can always run for safety from all that opposes us and would destroy us. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus 
as the true king. So that when we cry out for salvation, we are heard. And he comes and frees us from the evil that would oppress us and destroy us. Lord, thank you that you have called us into the kingdom of Jesus. We pray that you would give us the hearts of compassion that he has, the heart kind of hearts that are willing to risk our own safety to relieve the suffering of others. Hearts that are willing to risk because they know that in you there really is no risk. That whatever dangers we might face, we are completely safe in you. For like David and like Jesus, in Jesus, we have a certain future. And we speak that future over ourselves and over one another. We are going to reign with Jesus. And there might be a long, twisting path ahead. There might be many dark and dangerous years, but we are going to reign with Jesus. And so, Lord, we put our hope in you. Defend us by your love, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.